All right, I'm glad that you're here tonight as we talk some more about reading your Bible like a seminary student. Um, you know, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but reading your Bible can be somewhat intimidating. Um, I mean, after all, God wrote it, right? That just sounds a little bit intimidating to me to read the book that God wrote. So last week, as we began this discussion, we were talking about the structure of the Bible. Because having a structural perspective of the Word of God allows you to see how all the individual parts fit together. So, spent the entire time last week just talking about that structure of the Bible. And, and let me ask you if you remember this little equation. Go ahead and put that on the screen. Do you remember this equation? Do you remember what it means, more importantly? All right, so let's walk through this. And for those watching online, I apologize. We don't have a screen for you tonight. But I hope that you can hear all of this and take some really good notes. But the equation... The first equation is 512-5512. Say it with me. 512-5512. And that, uh, that represents what? The first five is the Pentateuch, the books of the law. The, the, the 12 is books of history. The next five? Poetry. Uh, or I, I thought about it after we left. It's, it's called poetry. It's sometimes also called wisdom literature. I kind of like that title as well, Wisdom Literature. And then after the five books of wisdom or five books of poetry, then we have another five, which is Major Prophets. And then we have 12, which is Minor Prophets. Very good. And then we get to the New Testament, which is really easy. Four, one, 21, one. Four represents the four Gospels. One represents the history, the one book of history, the book of Acts. 21 represents the letters. We've got... How many Pauline letters? Thirteen and eight general letters. Very good. And then we have one book of... Exactly, one book of prophecy. Now that's a great memory device and I'm glad you've learned that. But let's be honest, that can only take you so far. Right? In understanding the Bible. I mean, it's good, it's important, but it can only take you so far. We need to know more than just the categories of the Bible. It's important to know the categories but we need to know more than just the categories of the Bible. We need to know the overall narrative of the biblical story. If you want to know your Bible like a seminary student, I guarantee you seminary students know the overall narrative of the biblical story. Now, this narrative, as you might imagine, begins in Genesis and it concludes in Revelation. While the structure of the Bible is, of course, divided into the Old and the New Testament, the Bible tells, make sure you write this down if you're taking notes, the Bible tells one single unified story. I want you to get that in your mind, that the Bible tells one single unified story. Though there is an Old and a New Testament, the Bible tells one single unified story. And by the way, this is one of the reasons that I believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture. One of the major reasons I believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture. And I mentioned this a little bit last week, but it bears repeating. There are 66 books of the Bible written by 40 plus authors writing on three different continents. I didn't mention that last week. They were writing on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe over a period of 1,500 years, and yet they tell all together, you put it all together, and it tells one 
single unified story. Now, for some of you, I can already tell the way you're looking at each other and trying to figure this out. You say, wait a minute, the Bible was written on three different continents? Africa, Sinai, Sinai Peninsula, Moses writing a lot of the book of the law there in the Sinai Peninsula, which is Africa. Israel is considered Asia. If you look it up on seven continents of the world, Israel is considered Asia. Lots of the books of the Bible written in Asia. And then Europe, Paul wrote letters to the churches that he traveled to as he was carrying the gospel from different places. So you have the Bible written by, by 40 plus authors, three different continents, over a period of 1,500 years, and there's one unified story. And so tonight we're going to look at what we're calling the master narrative of the Bible. And I just got to be honest with you, if, if I can just uh, be a little bit transparent with you, I have been so frustrated this week. And the reason I've been so frustrated is like, how do you tell the master narrative of the Bible in 30 or 40 minutes? I mean, how do you, how, how are you supposed, I mean, I, I, was, I was thinking about the books on my shelf and, I, you know, I've got books in my library about that thick that we would take in seminary and go through the Old Testament in a year. New Testament in a semester or a year? How are you supposed to take all that material and do it in 30 or 40 minutes? It's just so frustrating. And yet, at the same time, it's so exciting. I've been looking forward to tonight because I've been excited to talk to you about the master narrative of the Bible. And so we're just going to jump in. We're going to do our best. Uh, we've got some slides for you here. For those of you who are here, it hopefully will help you take some notes. I'll try to uh, mention things carefully for those of you watching online as well. The main thing is take as many notes as you can. Don't get too frustrated. You're not going to be able to get it all down. I understand that. Uh, but just do it as best you can. We're not trying to understand everything perfectly. We're just trying to get the framework of the master narrative of the Bible. So, here we go. Let's start with the master narrative of the Old Testament. We really can break down the Old Testament into seven, seven smaller stories. That's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to break down the master narrative of the Old Testament into seven smaller stories. Let me also remind you and say once again that I'm taking most of this material from a book called How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Professor. Most, I want to be sure that I give credit, credit to that author. Uh, that that's where I got most of this material. But taking the master narrative of the Old Testament, but breaking it down into seven stories... Uh, the first story would be the story of creation and chaos. Creation and chaos. This would cover the period of time in the Bible from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. By the way, we're going to be going very slow through the first 12 chapters of Genesis and through the book of Genesis because it's so foundational to the whole story. So, uh, yes, we're going to take a long time to get through this section, then it will speed up as we move through tonight. So, let's take our Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, of course you know exactly, you could quote what the first verses are, but I want you to see it in the scripture. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 opens with these words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The author uses those words to place our feet on the starting block. The author said, okay, if you want to understand the story of the Bible, here's the starting block. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting, as he 
puts our feet on the starting block. And as you read through the first section, that it's all good. That's a, that's a sub-point there. If you're taking notes online, the first point is creation and chaos. The sub-point is it's all good. You see, the first thing that we learn in the beginning is that everything that God did was good. In fact, the text is pretty adamant to proclaim that everything that God made, everything that God did in the beginning was good. God is the creator, uh, and he brought all things into existence. And as the text unfolds, there's almost a, a rhythmic pattern that God created, and everything that he created was good. Look at with me in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was what, church? It was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. Verse, uh, another example, just real quickly. Verse 10. God called the dry ground land and the, and the gathered waters. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And if we were to take the time, we could read the whole creation story. And you see the, this rhythmic pattern. It was created by God and it was good. But then we come to the creation of man and woman. And when you come to the creation of man and woman, it's a little bit different. God looked at all that he had made, including man and woman. And God declared not just that it was good. But God declared that it was very good. Very good. Genesis 2 paints a picture then of man and woman living in this very good place created by God. Living in harmony and in peace. And watch this. And with all the provisions that they needed. Because everything that God had done was good. And... So everything that they needed was provided. It was a beautiful place. It was all very good. And then the story changes in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, it's all bad. That's the next sub-point. Genesis 3, it's all bad. Genesis 3 is what you might put in your notes as a benchmark chapter. This is one of those chapters that you may be familiar with, but you need to know this chapter very, very well. This part of the narrative explains who we are as humans, and it describes the condition in which we now abide, which is the condition, really, of chaos. Adam and Eve, as you know the story, more than likely, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They broke His rules, and thus, watch this, watch this. They broke His rules, and thus they broke His rule over their lives. Remember now, God created it and it was all good. But Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 broke God's rules and thus broke His rule over their lives. The rebellion against God and His rule over their lives caused all creation to become alienated from its Creator. And the peace and the harmony that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in all of God's creation no longer existed. The world had become a grotesque distortion that mocks the relationship that, once, that was once enjoyed by, his, by God the Creator and His creation. In fact, listen to this, and I'm not talking about anything political here, but you just watch the news anytime, uh, any day. You just watch the news and you will see that this world has become a grotesque distortion of the world God has created. The world is no longer good in the terms of how God 
created it. Something has distorted this world. Something has ruined God's creation. And we see evidence of that every single day on the news. So when you read the story, God drove Adam and Eve from the garden and humanity fell into a downward spiral. Make sure you write this down. God drove Adam and Eve from the garden that was good. He drove Adam and Eve from the garden and humanity began this downward spiral. Sin and death began to prevail. In fact, look in your Bibles. Just go over a few pages with me to Genesis chapter 4. We don't have time to read these things, but I want you to see what chapters they're in. When we get to Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed his brother Abel. That's, that's the first thing we read about in this narrative. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. Adam and Eve are removed from this wonderful place that God's created. And the very next thing in the narrative is that Cain killed his brother Abel. The first murder is evidence that indeed sin does lead to death. So it's no surprise when we come to Genesis chapter 5 that there's a genealogy from Adam to Noah And with each generation, each generation ends with these words. And then he died. Look in chapter 5. This is the written account of Adam's line. And it it goes on to describe the written account of Adam's line. And look what it says. Verse 5. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years. And then he died. And Seth lived 105 years. He became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived... 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years and then he died. If we had the time, we could read the entire genealogy and you would see it again and again and again. That phrase, every generation ends with this phrase. Every generation ends with this phrase and then he died. Sin indeed leads to death. God said that in the Garden of Eden. The day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Sin leads to death. We begin to see that unfold already in the narrative, don't we? We begin to see that already unfold in the story of what's happening in our world. And then the next subheading is, it gets worse. As if that's not bad enough, it gets worse. Genesis chapter 6 opens with a chilling observation. Genesis chapter 6 Verse 5 says this, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination and the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved, the Bible says, that he made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so what we read about is that not only did sin uh, spread, Cain and Abel and all their descendants and all their descendants and then they died and then they died and then they died. But what we read about is that sin spread to such a degree that man's thoughts were continually evil. And all of a sudden, let me read it to you again. Verse 5, look what it says. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of his, the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Look at that phrase, only evil all the time. And so what we see is that 
In Genesis 6-8, through God sends a cataclysmic flood that would purge the planet of all the wickedness that had invaded God's creation. The flood was the consequence of sin, and except for Noah and his family, the condemnation of humanity was complete. Sin had been judged. But now watch this. Even though the world was purged of sin through the flood, sin continued to exist in the hearts of Noah and his family. So here's a key moment. Write this down as a key moment in this narrative of the Old Testament. Here's a key moment. This flood account shows us that sin is a universal problem. It was over the entire world. It's a universal problem that deserves judgment. And it is a problem that we can't remove. I'll tell you why I say that. Just make sure you write those three things down. From the flood account, from that part of the narrative, the flood account, we see that sin is a universal problem. We see also that it deserves judgment. God judges the whole world, sends the flood on the whole world. And it is a problem that we cannot solve. And the reason I say that is because after the flood, what we see is as the population rebounds, sin begins to rebound as well. Because the seed of sin was still in the heart of Noah and his family. But there's hope. That's the next subheading. There's hope. In this master story, we see God judging sin and sin beginning to spread again. But then there's one genealogical line that's highlighted in the story, in this master narrative of the Old Testament. Genesis 11, Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32, write that down. Genesis 11, verses 10 through 32, traces the family line from a man named Shem to a man named Abram. That's another key moment, write that one down. I'm I'm trying as we go through here to make sure you at least get the key moments of of the biblical narrative because I know I've got so much I'm throwing at you. Here's what we read. Go go to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Verse 10. This is the account of Shem. And it goes, it's listing all this genealogy and all this genealogy. So why is that important? Well, Look in verse 31. Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, the wife of his son, Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there, and Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Why is that significant? A couple of things. First of all, There is a movement away from this pagan land and God is using one person. We're going to learn about him in just a moment. But God's going to work through the line of one person, through the line of one family to bring about the resolution of the problem that we've read about so far. And and just note in your Bibles, just put maybe underline it. It says that they, they were set out from Ur, the Chaldeans, to go to Canaan. One man, one family I should say, one family heading to a place called Canaan. Abram will become, 
pivotal in God's plan to lead humanity uh, toward reconciliation with himself. Here's what I want you to see. Here's, uh, I, I'm, I'm just trying to help you understand something. In the midst of the chaos, God was at work. In the midst of the chaos, God calls a man from an area we would call today Iraq. God calls a man and his family to leave that area and go towards an area that today we would call Israel. In the Bible, in this reference, is called Canaan. In the midst of the chaos, God is going to work through the family line of one man to bring about a resolution to the chaos everyone was living in. In other words, in the midst of the chaos, God was at work. Now, I told you that was going to go slow. We're going to start speeding up a little bit now as we come to the second section of the narrative, the second story. We're breaking the Old Testament narrative down into seven stories. Here's the second story. It's the story of God's promises. The story of God's promises. That covers the material Genesis 12 through Genesis 50. In other words, the rest of the book of Genesis talks about God's promises. That's part of the biblical narrative. First of all, there is God's promises to Abraham. God's plan of redemption began to take a definitive shape in chapter 12. At the end of chapter 11, of course, they're moving towards a land called Canaan. When you get to chapter 12, God's redemptive plan begins to take shape in chapter 12. He makes specific promises to this man named Abram. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, a significant passage that gives us a grid for understanding the rest of the Bible. So if you highlight anything in your Bible, if you like to mark anything, draw boxes around anything, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, is a foundational passage to the entire biblical narrative. Genesis 12, we need to read it. Verse 1 says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. And I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you I will curse. And watch this. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. These verses indicate that in choosing to bless Abraham or Abram. God was at work. Redeeming fallen humanity. Now, I'm convinced Abram didn't understand all of that. He didn't understand what all that meant. But he was obeying God and doing what God showed him. And God's promise had three parts. Some of you have heard me say this recently, but let me say it again. God's promise had three parts. Make sure you write these down if you're taking notes. First of all, there was the promise of a people. God said to Abram that he would father many descendants and that he would become a mighty nation. Alright, so there was the promise of people. that Abraham, through your family, through your line, you're going to become a mighty nation. Fast forward. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really, really fast forwarding here. But I want to make sure you're, you're clicking with me. This mighty nation is the nation of Israel. God says to Abraham, through your family, I'm going to create a mighty nation. Number two, the second part of the promise was this. I'm going to give you a land. It was the promise of land. These descendants would inherit their own land. 
You're going to have your own land because you're going to be a nation. And then the third part of the, the third promise was worldwide blessing. That God would use this nation to bless the world. God would use this nation to bless the world. So here's the promise to Abraham. And you see it all through the book of Genesis and, and rehearsed again and again for his descendants. So then we come to God's promise to Abraham's descendants. See, after Genesis 12, the remainder of Genesis traces this promise that was made to Abraham or to Abram. And it traces that promise to his son Isaac. And it traces the promise then to his son Jacob, which was Abraham's grandson. And what you find when you come to the end of the book of Genesis, you find God's people growing. The first part of that promise is taking place. That Abraham has descendants, and those descendants are growing rapidly. And they're living in a land, but it was not the land of promise. They're living in the land of Egypt. Yet the first part of that promise was coming true, wasn't it? They were not yet a nation, but they were a large, growing people group. Problem is, they were living in slavery in Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis ends. That brings us to the third story in this master narrative of the Old Testament, and that is God's law for His people in the land of promise. God's law for His people in the land of promise. That covers the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I know you're trying to take notes, and I'm going to try to give you time to write these things down. So, let's talk about God's guidance as we talk about this part of the story, God's guidance. Though God had blessed Abraham's family, they had not yet become the nation that he had promised. And they certainly were not residing in their own land. As I said a moment ago, they were still residing in Egypt. So God chose an unlikely man named Moses to miraculously lead God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into this land that God had promised them. Now, on their way to the promised land, this is where it gets really important for you and I as far as understanding the Bible. On the way to the promised land, they stop at a place called Mount Sinai. Now, get this in your mind. They're leaving Egypt. They're going up towards Israel. And on their way to Israel, what we would today call Israel, leaving Egypt, on their way to Israel, on their way towards Israel, they stop at Mount Sinai. And out at Mount Sinai, God gave Moses and the people what we call the Ten Commandments and the nucleus of what we call the Hebrew law. Write this reference down, Exodus 20. Exodus 20, another key chapter in the biblical narrative. So God gave them the law. Why did God give them this law? God intended the law to guide this nation once they lived in the land of promise. That makes sense? Once you get into the land of promise and you, you become a nation, you need some kind of a law to guide you. So God gave the law not to restrict His people. Not to say, don't do that, and don't do that, and don't do that. That's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to guide God's people to become the nation He envisioned them being. To guide God's people as they moved into this land of promise. So that's God's guidance, giving them the law at Mount Sinai as they're heading towards the promised land. But we also need to talk about man's sin. That's the next subheading 
in this part of the story. Because during this period of time, God also established what we would call the sacrificial system of worship. God instructed the people that they were to present sacrifices to Him because of their sins. It's interesting that these sacrifices, write this down, these sacrifices were to be repetitious in nature. Why would you think the sacrifices need to be repetitious in nature? Because our sins are repetitious in nature. We don't just sin one time, or, or at least maybe you do, but I, I don't. We don't just sin one time. We've sinned again and again and again. And so God set up this sacrificial system to deal with the sins of His people as they enter His promised land. There has to be a way to deal with the sin of the people. And so He, he sets up this sacrificial system that was repetitious as a reminder of their repetitious sin. And the sacrificial system communicated four truths. Please write these down. The sacrificial system that God created as the people of God were coming into the promised land the sacrificial system created four truths. Here's the, the first one. Number one, a holy God cannot tolerate sin. Number two, God stipulates that the penalty for sin is death. He said that in the Garden of Eden. He also said it to His people as He established this law. God stipulates that the penalty for sin is death. That's why the animals were sacrificed. The penalty for sin is death. Number three. God is willing to accept a temporary substitute for the life of the sinner. God begins to plant this idea in the minds and hearts of His people of a substitute. That a goat or a lamb was sacrificed as a substitute. And God was willing to accept a temporary substitute for the life of the sinner. And number four, God's grace allows judgment to be postponed until sin is ultimately resolved. That is, these sacrifices that they would be offering were simply pointing towards one day the ultimate sacrifice that would be offered for all of our sin, for all of time. Alright, so as we continue this biblical narrative through the Old Testament, this master narrative, we come to the fourth story, and that is the story of unfaithfulness in the land. The people of God are now in the land. They've received, watch this, they've received the law of God, and they have received the sacrificial system, and they're now living in the land of promise as the people of God. But now there's this period in the story of unfaithfulness as they live in the land of promise. And the, the books for this, the Old Testament books, are the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Now, it starts out with a good beginning. That's the first subheading. It starts out with a good beginning. The book of Joshua chronicles the entrance of the people of God, now known as the nation of Israel, into the land of promise. And it's, it's a pretty good beginning. The first half of the book of Joshua describes this seven-year conquest of the land. They go into the land. It's, it's occupied. They have to con conquer the people who live there. And there's a seven-year period of conquest of the land. And they faithfully were able to take the land because they were faithful to God. 
They walked in faith and obedience. Because of that, God honored their faith and obedience. And they conquered city after city, city after city. And they, eventually the land became theirs. That's the first half of the book of Joshua. The second half of the book of Joshua details the partitioning of the land or giving the land to the family groups, the tribes. This tribe will live here, this tribe will live here, and they're partitioning this promised land. That's a pretty good beginning as you come into the land of promise. The second part of this, this narrative or the second subheading is a tragic turn of events. It was a heartbreaking statement recorded early in the book of Judges. Would you find the book of Judges real quickly? Book of Judges, and look at chapter 2, the book of Judges chapter 2, book of Judges chapter 2 verse 10, here's what we read, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, that is, the whole generation who had lived in the land and conquered the land, the whole generation that God had used to come into the land and to conquer it and, and to occupy it and to divide it up and all of that kind of thing, after, after that, genera- that whole generation had, ga- had been gathered to their fathers or after they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. And here's what happens. The rest of the book of Judges describes a tragic time in Israel's history when the people of God worshipped idols, that, the idols of their enemies. They worshipped the idols of their neighboring nations. And, and the story of the people of God became a cyclical story described in five words. Write these five words down please if you're taking notes. A cyclical story with five words. The word sin, the word slavery, The word sorrow, the word salvation, and the word silence. Let me explain those to you. First of all, the word sin. There's this cyclical story. It kept repeating throughout the book of Judges. It kept repeating again and again that the people of God would turn away from the Lord and they would turn away from the one who had given them all that they had and they would have a heart that was... uh, uh, led away into sin as they worshipped idols and, and all those kind of things. That sin then led them into slavery. That God would judge them. And they would experience slavery of some type or, or oppression. And then that would lead to sorrow. That they were repentant. That's what sorrow is. They, they would repent. They would cry out to God for a deliverer. And then that would lead to salvation. That God would raise up a judge to... To free them from their enemies. And God would free them from the oppression. God would deliver them from their problem. And then there was a period of silence. Or you might say peace. There was a period where everything was good. But here's the problem. The problem is that cycle repeated again and again and again. And watch this. This is so important. Make sure you write this down. The pattern grew progressively worse. The darkness of unfaithfulness permeated the nation. With each generation, this pattern, this cyclical pattern, got worse and worse and worse. The darkness of unfaithfulness got just permeated the land of Israel. And during this time, the people of God decided they didn't need God. You know what they decided they needed? 
They decided the thing that would fix their nation is they didn't need God. They needed a king. Because all the other nations have kings. They have a leader. They don't have a leader. Now, in fact, they did have a leader. It was God. God was the one that was supposed to be their leader. But they decided, you know what our problem is? It's just like us. Our problem is not us. Our problem is is something else, right? Our problem is not my sin. Our problem is is this situation. And and so they decided, you know what our problem is? Our problem is not that we've turned away from God and we're worshiping idols. No, 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 no. Our problem is we don't have a king. If we just had a king, we'd be a much better nation. We wouldn't have all of this oppression. If we just had a king, we wouldn't have all these people coming in, our enemies attacking us. If we just had a king, everything would be better. So they asked for a king, and God eventually gave them a king. And, of course, the first king of Israel was a man named Saul. And if you know the story of Saul, he started out as a godly man, and he eventually became an unfaithful king. And here's, here's something that's kind of interesting to me. What was happening in the land about unfaithfulness eventually began to happen in the heart of the leader. That the land was so polluted with sin. The land was so polluted with sin that the heart of the leader became polluted as well. So that was the tragic turn of events. Then we come to the fifth part of the story as we look at the master narrative, and that is covenant kingship, what the author calls covenant kingship, the messianic hope and crisis. There, there's a lot of books. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you this. If you don't get all this, I'll give it to you afterwards. But First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Now, this part of the story kind of takes a good turn for a while. So, the first subheading there, if you look on the screen, is faithful reliance. After Saul died, remember Saul started out as kind of a godly king and then, and then Saul began to worship the gods around him and, and his heart was led away and Saul becomes an ungodly leader, an unfaithful leader. After Saul died, David, a former shepherd, became king and he ruled for about 40 years. That's a pretty long kingdom, uh, reign as a king, about 40 years David was different from his predecessor Saul because David depended on God for wisdom. And David's love for God was real to such a degree that David longed to build the Lord a house. Or we would call it today a temple. God told David, I appreciate what you're wanting to do for me, but you're not the one to build the temple for me. But here's what happened. Write this down. This, and put important moment in your notes here. God said to David, he gave him a prophetic promise. There will be one who will build a house from your lineage. And it will be an eternal house. First Chronicles 17. First Chronicles 17, just 
You might want to listen as I read this to you. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan, the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. In other words, Nathan said, You know what? God's hand is on you. So whatever you think you ought to do, you need to do it because God's hand is on you. Verse 3, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelled in a house from the day I, I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to anybody or to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God basically said, Have I ever asked for a house? Have I ever asked anybody to build me a temple? And look what it says in verse 10, second half of verse 10. God declares, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. You're not going to build a house for God. David, God's going to build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me. He's going to build the physical temple for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son, and I will take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. This, his throne will be established forever. God said, God said, Look, David, you're not the one to build the house for me, but I'm going to let your son build me a temple. I'm going to let your son build me a house, a temple. But then, you need to understand something else, David. I'm going to build a spiritual house. I, God, am going to build a spiritual house. And it will be a house that is eternal. And one of your descendants will occupy the throne of Israel forever. Now, man, I wish we had time to talk about this. One of your descendants, he said, will occupy the throne of Israel forever. That's why what we read this morning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. Because God made this promise in 1 Chronicles 17, a high water mark, if you will, in the Old Testament narrative. God made this promise. I know you want to build a house for me, and while we're talking about building things, uh, your son is going to build the temple. But let me tell you something. I plan to build a house too. It's going to be a spiritual house, and there will be one who sits on the throne of David forever. And when the New Testament opens into the book of Matthew, the first verse of the New Testament is Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. I'll tell you something, God's not pretending to be God, He is God. He's sovereign. Now, we'll have to speed up here for a little bit. Um, that's, that's no surprise to you, is it? This is where I wish we could push the pause button and talk for a little bit. I'll, I'll tell you something. During most of David's reign, the nation prospered under his leadership. And the reason it prospered under his leadership was because of David's covenant faithfulness to God. You already know his, the description of his life. David was a man after 
Something occurred to me the other day. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was still a man. And I'm not trying to be crude or anything like that. I'm just trying to say this. He was still human. He was still flawed. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was still a man. And you know the story, right? One day this man, on the rooftop of his palace, sees a woman bathing. He calls her to his palace. Commits adultery with her. And he later murders her husband. This man, after God's own heart. Now, David repented. And if you read sometime in the scripture, you can read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. David repented. David experienced God's forgiveness. But listen to me, hear me. From that point on, until his death, David experienced both personal and national struggles that plagued his kingdom. Sometimes I think we just feel like we, we, we can just sin and we can get away with it. We just ask God's forgiveness and then we just go on. But there's always consequences to sin that we have to live with. David had to live with the consequences of his sin. And though he experienced the forgiveness of God and he wrote about it in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And it's a beautiful story of God's redemption. Beautiful story of God's forgiveness. A beautiful story of God restoring him. But there were still consequences. Both personally and as a nation. They struggled because of the sin of this great king. Which then brings us to the next subheading called crisis and division. David eventually died. And upon his death, his son Solomon became king. Solomon was known as the wisest man to ever live. He built great wealth, great power, great kingdom. Again, Solomon, though he was the wisest man in the world, his heart was pulled away by foreign women. His heart was drawn away from God, from the foreign women. He eventually began to worship the little g gods of the many wives he began to marry. He even constructed altars to these little g gods and erected them in Jerusalem. That's how far away he got from God. Then Solomon had a son. And Solomon, after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took over as king. Rehoboam was a man who thought, I'll show everybody who the king really is. And he began to oppress his people. And he oppressed his people to such a degree that the kingdom of God, watch this, another key moment in history. The kingdom of God split into two nations. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Sometimes referred to as the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom was made up of two tribes. The northern kingdom made up of ten tribes. 
The southern kingdom, the capital was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, the capital was Samaria. Once the nation of Israel split, things really began to grow dark in the land of promise. Dark spiritually. You see, uh, keep in mind the, the, the ten northern tribes, Israel, after the split. You've got the north and the south. So keep in mind these ten nor- northern, northern tribes called Israel. Do you know that as you read the, the Old Testament narrative, that every king in the northern tribe or the northern kingdom, all the kings of Israel were evil from that time forward. Every one of them. Every one of the kings, from that after Rehoboam and the kingdom split, every one of the kings were evil. And then in the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah, most of the kings were evil. A few tried to lead God's people back to covenant relationship with the Lord, but it was always short-lived. And most of the kings in the southern kingdom were evil. Which brings us, we're going to quickly move through the rest of this, which brings us in these last five minutes, number six, to the covenant judgment. Or you might just call it captivity. This would be the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Covenant judgment or captivity. You see, this, this next portion of the story Because these kingdoms split and every king in the northern kingdom was evil and nearly every king of the southern kingdom was evil, there was a coming judgment that God's prophets began to talk about. The two kingdoms were in a downward spiral. Morally and spiritually, they were in a downward spiral and the blessings of God were removed from them. And God sent prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel to call the people of God back to repentance. To call the people of God back into a relationship with God. But their kings were evil. And they were leading the nation down this evil spiral. And the prophets were sent to tell the people that unless you repent, tragedy is going to come to our land. Unless you turn back to God and turn away from idolatry, we will soon experience the judgment of God. But that repentance never came. Which led to captivity and destruction. Which is the next bullet point. Captivity and destruction. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple of dates. These are dates you need to just burn in your mind. Because they are such key dates in biblical history. One is the year 722 B.C. 722 B.C. In the year 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the powerful empire of Assyria. Assyria came in, they, they conquered the land, they captured the people, they dispersed the people to different countries. And from that time forward, we, we, you, in the biblical record, you really have no record of Israel again. They're just in captivity from that time forward. 722, those northern tribes, the northern kingdom... 722, captured, conquered by Syria, never really to be heard of again in the Old Testament record. Another key date, 586 B.C. Now, now get this in mind. 722, Israel is conquered. The ten northern kingdoms are conquered. 
After that time, God continued to send prophets to the southern kingdom to warn the people in the southern kingdom, you still have time to repent. You still have time to turn back to God. But if you do not turn back to God, you will experience a similar fate as the northern kingdom. And it was, sometimes they listened, sometimes they didn't. And so in 586 B.C., another key moment in the biblical story, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Judah. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And they took the majority of the residents as captives to Babylon. You might want to write down this reference because it's so graphic. Uh, Leviticus 18.28, it's not a a verse that you probably normally have heard in your devotions before. Leviticus 18.28, it says that the land of promise vomited the people of God out of the land. The land vomited the people of God. That's the word that's used. The land vomited the people of God out of the land. God's people were now captive in a foreign land. They were prisoners of war and they longed for the blessings that they used to know. They longed for another king to come to set them free. They began to think about and talk about a messianic king, a messiah. One promised long ago by the prophets. They longed for their homeland. But here's the deal. But would they ever get the chance to go back home? Would they ever get the chance to go back home? They were living in Babylon as prisoners. I know we're out of time, so I'm just going to give you this real quick. The seventh thing, so we can finish the Old Testament. The seventh story in the Old Testament narrative is covenant promises. Twelve minor prophets plus Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That's the biblical record. Twelve minor prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So, the, the, the bullet point under this section is returning home. Judgment is indeed painful, but the judgment of God did not alter the promises of God. You might want to make sure you write that down, highlight it, underline it. The judgment of God did not alter the promises of God. God would indeed bring the people back to the land He had promised them. So, Ezra and Nehemiah gives us give us the accounts of God's people returning home. Let me give you another key date. It's the last one I'll give you tonight. The key date is 538 B.C. Another high water mark. Another date needs to be burned in your mind. 538 B.C. People of God are living in Babylon. And in 538 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus conquered Babylon and allowed the people of God to go back home. The Babylonians weren't going to release them. So God sent the Persian king Cyrus to conquer Babylon. And once he conquered Babylon, he allowed God's people to return to their homeland. And they came, they went in three different groups. I told you I was only going to give you one more date. I lied. I'm going to give you two or three more dates. They went in three different groups. Three different groups as captives back home. The first group was led by Zerubbabel. They returned in 538 B.C. So in other words, as soon as as Cyrus says, y'all can go home, there was a first group that said, we gone. And they went home. They were led by Zerubbabel and they rebuilt the temple. The second group was led by a man named Ezra. 
they went home about 80 years later, 458 B.C. 458 B.C. They went home. Led by a man named Ezra. And watch this. When they got home, remember Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple? When they got home, Ezra led them in a revival of the word. It's like if we don't get back to what God says, we're going to experience his judgment again. We need to know the word. We need to read the word. We need to live the word. So Ezra called the people of God back to the word of God. And then the third group that went home from Babylon was led by Nehemiah in 445 B.C. 445 B.C. Nehemiah led the third and final group from Babylon back home to the promised land. And Nehemiah was used by God to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. To rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Now the people of God are back in the land. Watch this. Remember what he said in Genesis 12? People, land, blessing. Now they have hope. The people are back in the land. And they're beginning to experience the blessing of God. But now they have a different perspective. Now they're they're beginning to talk about Messiah. Messiah. Now they recognize they need Messiah. How would they know when Messiah shows up? How would they know that it is Messiah when he comes? Could it be that Isaiah, could it be that Isaiah would predict, could it be that Isaiah said, you know, there will be one who will come and announce and prepare the way for Messiah. And when God sends this forerunner, we call John the Baptist, I talked about it this morning, that's why I was kind of acting the way I did there. When God sent this forerunner, John the Baptist, it was God's way of saying, this is Messiah, promised in the Old Testament. Thank you for being patient. You are going to be dismissed four minutes late. I apologize for that. Didn't get to the New Testament, but I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. I know some of you are wanting to get to the point, how do I study my Bible? I promise you we'll get to that next week as we quickly go through the New Testament and then start learning how to read the Bible differently. Okay? God bless you. Good night.